We, um, in, in the Western society that we live in, um, and, and particularly in America, because America was um, the, really the, it had started before this, but America was sort of like the great experiment of, of rugged individualism. Everybody doing their own thing. They're, they are freed from the shackles of um, the tyranny of, uh, of king and or church. Right? And so um, we want to talk about, often we'll hear the, the conversation right in, in uh, sort of history class, how the folks came for religious freedom. Um, but a lot of that is very rooted in sort of ideas of individual liberty and, and, and such. Right? Um, the individual is our mascot, uh, apart from um, the community. Sometimes we, we, we set those two apart, right? Because sometimes what the individual wants to do is not in the best interest of the community, uh, and sometimes what community wants to do will infringe upon certain individuals' ideas. Right? And we have stories um, throughout that, I mean, that we just tell, um, whether it's actually like true non-fictional sort of historical stories or our, um, within fiction and, and whatnot, right, of the individual who seeks his or her own good over uh, others. Um, and likewise, who, can you think of individuals in, um, individual characters from any sorts of stories that are, that epitomize sort of that notion of the individual? I thought, I thought of, like, and well, I'm sorry, this is where my brain goes, right? Han Solo, is, he's, he's kind of a rogue. Um, but right, at, at least at the beginning of Star Wars, he's, he's the individual. Like, he doesn't care. Um, he, he runs sort of afoul of both uh, other individuals and the government, and he's not... He's not real. And, and in some sense, throughout Star Wars, we see a slow redemption of him to sort of bring him back into the fold of community, right? Um, and I'm, I try very hard to think of any good, any, think of any like, good examples of individual. Because, again, my next thought was Walter White on Breaking Bad. Like, he goes after his, his own... He, he's torn between family and... And his own, but um, I think he's kind of a consummate sort of individual. Um, the the power of the individual gets lifted up a great deal when we talk about businesses, right? The people who sort of they have these um, narratives, whether they're true or whether they're sort of um, just sort of their own self identity of like pulling themselves up by their bootstraps, creating this some sort of empire of wealth and whatnot. Like Andrew Carnegie, like we can't sneeze in Pittsburgh without hitting something from Andrew Carnegie, right? Um, who, it, that one really does kind of work. He showed up with, you know, 20 cents in his pocket and he built, you know, this great business empire. Um, I 
But I bring this up partly because Lutherans, um, we kind of, Luther himself was kind of important in this whole notion because it became a matter of how do we understand the Bible, right? Remember, he was the first one who claimed that an individual armed with scripture and reason could interpret it for himself. That opens up this, I mean, that was, in, that was in, to us, it's kind of like, well, yeah, duh. But that was so counter to the notion of, no, uh, individuals can't do that. We, as a, as a discerning body, have to sort of figure that out. And by discerning body, that meant the church, the pope. And that's where that all resided. Because it wasn't just that it was the pope who was the, the pope, surrounded by other scholars and theologians, would interpret things in such a way. Well, to favor them. But, um, so, but that starts, I mean, that was part of a very big beginning movement historically about um, the rise of the individual. And it wasn't just Luther, there were others, but sort of started just rolling at that point. Now we're in a situation where we had, okay, well, what is true is what is true for me. It's me, armed with reason, can determine what things mean. And so that's why it's now what we call the postmodern situation. We understand life really just as the individual. And our perceptions are our reality. Which makes dealing with things like biblical texts very challenging. And we get this key text from Jesus, this, this Sermon on the Mount. And um, we had a portion of it today that included the Lord's Prayer and, and all that. And um, the part about um, not having our treasures stored up where moth and rust consume and where thieves break in and steal. I could sit here, we could talk, or talk about that in, link, in connection with uh, the petition about give us this day our daily bread. So, you know, uh, we pray for that sort of stuff that only happens to us or, or that sustains us and then also um, how we should live simple life. We could go that route with a sermon. Many people do. Um, but we also have, I mean, that in light of things like the, the movie Wall Street, um, oh, it was played by Michael uh, Douglas played a, a, a stockbroker who gave this famous speech about how greed is good, right? And, and there's this notion, even within business, like the, what is best is for the company to um, live out, to function to its end, to just make money, and that will therefore prosper um, and would be the best thing for, for society. Our, our understanding, though, that, that's a treasures on earth and treasures in heaven. I want, to, I want to go around this just a little bit. How is it that we, as a people, right, do we keep our treasures in, in heaven? Do we keep where moths will consume and where uh, thieves will break in and steal, uh, in a sense, for me, I see this as a notion throughout the whole Sermon on the Mount. How is it that we are able to hear uh, Jesus 
Jesus' words um, that have a meaning above just our earthly existence, right? but that speak to it nonetheless. So how are we able to hear these sort of words and bring something out for us that don't just that are not subject to the um, the whims and notions of the stuff going on around us. Um, part of this came from our, our conversations with, at God Talk, where we're starting to look at social statements uh, for the ELCA. Um, right. So this week we get abortion, and next week we get uh, the following week we'll do the death penalty. Right. Normally. If we were to break that down sort of by earthly understandings, um, by political leanings, right, um, we can draw a pretty sharp divide and that um, people who are anti-abortion are on the very conservative side of things. And how is it, and then for the death penalty, the people who are against the death penalty are on the very generally progressive side of things, right? So we have a divide here. the Roman Catholic Church would talk about a seamless garment of, of life so that they create, um, they, are, they, would, they would generally be understood as, a, as an organization that is um, fairly consistent in the way it talks about life. No abortion and no death penalty. But the people who are against abortion are usually for the death penalty. And the people who are against the uh, death penalty are for abortion. And I think this is one of those places in the midst of our existence that here we're not talking about physical goods, right? But this is a place I would think about where moths consume and thieves break in and steal. They take our life and they divide it and they pull it apart. Now, that's the, that's the whole power of sin is to, is to divide and pull apart. How is it that we can begin to discern a way that is good? I mean, and, right, these things line up right along sort of individual community lines, right? How do we enter into, as Christians, conversations that are about, uh, that hold up the worth of the individual, but at the same time, the common good for community? The common good is something that is disappearing fast because we don't agree, because of our postmodern situation, we don't agree what the common good is. And so we have to enter into conversations um, about what it is that it means. And, and we can draw sh- straight lines and, and, and hard and fast lines. I know um, folks who won't, do, won't take part in things like the American Cancer Society's Relay for Life because some money for that from the American Cancer Society, not necessarily money from the Relay for Life, but some money from the American Cancer Society goes to Planned Parenthood. Well, so then it's like, well, then they're out. I can't participate in that. In the midst of a divided world, right, what does it begin to look like for us as Christians to respond? And the, the Sermon on the Mount, um, I think, is a place for us to enter into that kind of reality. Um, we had the Beatitudes last week, which weren't so much the sense of do these to get these things, right? Be meek so that you inherit the kingdom of God. But more along the lines of 
where we see these things, we know God is at work. We, we see a future that is, that is moving for us. When we are encountered with things that pull us apart, right? Jesus urges us to pray, right? Not to live our, our, our spiritual lives in such a way to, to gain sort of earthly glory, right? But he urges us to pray, right? And the, the notion of our Father in heaven, his name being made holy on earth and in heaven, finding us a place for us, finding what we can do, give us this day our daily bread, finding what we can do in the midst of our lives um, to find sustenance um, for ourselves, but also, I think, in a sense, that empowers us to bring life and give sustenance to others. Luther understood our daily bread not just to be the literal food on our table, but all of the stuff around us that helps contribute to a good life. So it is our governing authorities, um, our highway systems. Wrapped up in the notion of daily bread is a deep understanding of the common good and everything we all need. It's not just give me this day my daily bread. Give us our day this daily bread. And so I think that works for us how we enter into into society, not just as roguish individuals, but as people who are brought into this community of God through the waters of baptism so that we may participate in the redemption of the world with God a sense of understanding this is where we are, this, this is where God is taking us to a place where there'll be no more mourning and no more hunger and no more poverty and um, no more people on death row and no more abortions. and no, All of those things will be vanished and how is it that we can work to bring life? In the meantime, it's a divided life. That's kind of the nature of the fallen world. We make decisions to, to work on things without all of the details in front of us. We make our best guesses. We do the things that we think give life the most. And through it all, we cling to the notion that God is at work in us, right? that God can open up this new reality through us, hoping that moths don't devour and that thieves don't break in and steal and rust doesn't consume it. We are constantly engaged in these processes and open to God's work in us so that our existence um, is not slowly eaten away and all that we're left with is simply earthly platitudes but a reality Something, something deeper and more meaningful that is far more lasting than political attitudes one way or the other. God is at work in us. And I think we see this in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus gives us a vision of what it may look like later on. Lend without any expectation of being repaid. 
If someone wants your coat, give them your, your tunic as well. Um, is, does he mean that literally, maybe? Um, is, it, is it hyperbole? But I think it's a vision for us. It gives us this vision of what our future existence is to be, hoping that we can even begin to enact little bits of it, piece by piece. Because we get piece by piece in the meal and in the font with a, with a life that's opened up for us and granted to us without our asking, without our deserving. We're individuals in the midst of a greater community that is being shaped by God at work in us. Thanks be to God. Amen.